Today's podcast is brought to you by my number one choice in tires, Pirelli. And since I used to be a race car driver, I know a thing or two about tires. The iconic tire brand is known for its long tradition of innovation, advanced technologies, and high-quality products. Pirelli recently added the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3 to its American range. Developed to go the distance, it comes with a 70,000-mile treadwear warranty. Choose more mileage, more comfort, more control with the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3. Ask your local dealer for a tune-up. Trust me, I'm a driver. Me, my brother chose to end his life by suicide and it deeply impacted myself and my parents. And when I look back, you know, my thoughts about myself and whether the world was safe enough and I could go make something of myself in it had really shifted, right? You know, I really didn't have a knowledge of, of like, oh, you think about yourself differently where you have an internal dialogue that's built around shame now and built around shock. And, and you know, I needed help then. And there's no shame to that, right? In a sense, right? Like trauma makes us want to feel ashamed so that we hide, but we we absolutely need help if it rises to the point where we're not sleeping well, we're depressed, we can't get it out of our minds. You know, if one hurts one's knee or, you know, one has a problem in their lungs or like we go see yeah. people to help us. If, if trauma rises to the level of overwhelming our coping skills, then our brain function changes and we can't just think our way into changing that back. Hello, welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. On the show today is Paul Conti. He's a physician and a psychiatrist, and he has a book out called Trauma, The Invisible Epidemic. Couldn't be more well put than that title of the book. You know, obviously the conversation is about trauma, really helping people understand what it is and understand how you get it, how it's passed on. I mean, the fact that it's generational through epigenetics, we ex he explains that whole scenario and then also healing therapies and modalities that can be used whether you have no money and no resources to go outside of you wherever you live or if you do and the great therapies that are available and just the effect that the world's having on us right like it's a real thing i mean we don't live in a world where it's easy to navigate and not stay out of a vigilant high beta brain state of fear and concern and um and just how to how we can be more responsible for that and develop um, agency and sovereignty over ourselves uh, these are some real keys to freedom so i hope you enjoy this conversation uh, please hit subscribe if you like the show or maybe other shows and i'd love to hear you in the comments you know what do you think what do you want to hear more about thanks for stopping by and enjoy the show well i'm flattered that you I'm flattered that you watch racing and that you are a fan. And, but like I said, if you just knew how much I loved psychology, I just got done reading the body keeps the score. Okay. okay. That's yeah. how much I love psychology. It's a pretty dense book. So if you, you read it, you really, you really are interested. No doubt. Yeah. It took a little while to get through it. I was slowly, but surely chipping away at it, but, yeah. um, and it is dense. There's a lot of information, a lot of data, yeah. Um, yeah. But so much good information, which is yep. going to lead to some of the questions today because it's there was yes. some compelling stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought mm -hmm. maybe the best place to start would be to kind of jump in. It's a common question I bet you get, but I also want you to add in your perspective on um, on on another side of it, which is defining trauma. But maybe first start off by a, what you think people define trauma of, because. Mm -hmm. 
with the fact that, I mean, you're, you're the title of your book, like the invisible epidemic trauma being the invisible epidemic, right. people don't quite understand it. So maybe what do mm -hmm. people think yeah. it is? And then what is it for real? So often times when, when people think about or talk about trauma, what, what often comes to mind is like, oh, anything that's negative, right? And, and that can lead to, to kind of two extremes, right? One can be to really minimize and say, hey, everybody has negative things, right? Everyone's, everyone's traumatized in some way. And then that can lead people to sort of discount it, right? On the other end, if we're painting with too much of a broad brush, there are people who then want to say, you know, every child gets a trophy or, you know, we want to start, we want to start then protecting people from any adversity, right? So, so trauma is not, you know, anything with clinical trauma, right? It's not anything that's negative, right? It is something that is, that is negative in a way that overwhelms our coping skills, right? So if it overwhelms our ability to take it in, our ability to cope with what that trauma is, then there are changes in our brains, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just like, oh, it's anything negative. No, it's something that rises to the level where our brain function, right? And therefore our psychology, right? Which, which rides upon our brain function is different going forward. And there's, there's hard scientific evidence about this. So it's not a soft concept, right? Like we know that, for example, vigilance mechanisms in the brain change, right? After trauma, the, the true trauma that overwhelms our coping mechanisms and leaves us different going forward, that all sorts of things shift inside of us, including genetic changes where it can change how active or not active the, our genes are when we pass them on years later. Wow. Right. So if you think about that, it's grounded in the cutting edge of science, but we but we are not applying that cutting edge of science in our understanding of like what's going on in the world around us, in our societies, and what's going on in each of us. Mm. So you're saying that so you can have two people experience the same thing, trauma, same, same adversity, and one registers at it as an actual trauma and one doesn't, correct? Right. You know, I try to always eat clean, but sometimes, well, life happens. Friends come over or plans change or you just run out of time and you got to reach for a snack. That's why I reach for Good Foods plant-based dips. With Good Foods, I get to snack healthy, but I don't have to sacrifice taste. Sometimes the convenient choice can be the smart choice. Good Foods plant-based dips are all made with simple, clean ingredients like fresh produce, herbs, and spices. They're vegan with no added sugars, and they're dairy-free and gluten-free. And that's something I can feel good about when I dip fresh veggies into creamy, delicious Good Foods queso. So make the good choice and grab Good Foods dips the next time you go to the grocery store. Try a whole selection of plant-based dips, Buffalo, tzatziki, queso, and spicy queso. And don't forget about the guac. They're all made with fresh ingredients and full of flavor. Eat good and feel good with Good Foods guac and plant-based dips. Right. And even in the same person, there's something called, say, the multiple hit hypothesis, which might say that I might have three, four, five traumas, maybe, right? And, and they could look pretty significant from the outside, but they don't overwhelm my coping mechanisms and change my brain as I go forward. Then there might be another one that might even be much smaller, say less than the magnitude of the previous ones. And that could push a person 
into now having basically a post-trauma syndrome. So it varies by person. What are our genetics and are we are genetics protective or do they make liability for us? What has our prior life experience been? What support mechanisms do we have around us? Mm-hmm. So it varies across people and it can also vary within a person where it might be that fourth, fifth, sixth trauma that can then make a syndrome that didn't occur with the first. Wow. How, just to give more insight, like given maybe an anecdotal situation of, of something that would be perceived to anyone as small, like how small can something get for the body to register it as a trauma? Well, I mean, theoretically it could get quite small, very small, if that if the person is particularly susceptible, right? So if you imagine someone who's been in just dire circumstances, right? And and they've gotten through them without being overwhelmed. Say the, the person has made it through being a refugee and, you know, trying to escape Syria and get from one place to another and, and just makes it through and then gets to a place where seemingly they feel like, okay, now I'm, I'm safe, right? I'm out of I'm out of the the danger, right? And then imagine in environments like that, if there's some sort of chronic denigration where where the person is now seen as less than, you know, they're ethnically different or their socioeconomic status is different, that it, that could push someone to oh. to then a post trauma syndrome, even though one might think there's nothing even dramatic going on happening there, anymore, right? <laughs> right, right. But but you know, so much of what goes on with us, like it all goes on inside of us, right? And then we we have to live with the experiences that happen inside of us and how they impact us, which, which is why we need a healthcare system that's actually paying attention to what's going on inside of us, talking to us about it, right? As opposed to seeing all of us the same. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the what we've been talking about so far is like really important, right? Because it's acknowledging the difference across human beings that, hey, we're not all the same, right? We don't have the same genetic makeup. We don't have the same experiences. We don't react the same way. And if we look at us all the same, right? How are we going to help any of us? And and that's also, you know, in writing a book that I I wish to be accessible to anyone, right, who chooses to pick it up and read it and entertaining and engaging that writes about these things in, in sort of common plain language, right? It's so that we can gain an understanding not just of what it is, but of how do we prevent it? I mean, that's ultimately what we'd wish to do. Or how do we recognize it if it's present? How do we treat it? Because the systems around us, the medical systems and mental health care systems um, are, are doing such a poor job mm-hmm. of that. What are kind of the environmental circumstances that lead to someone, since obviously everyone registers things different and even that person individually themselves can register it different over time or through repetition, what is it that, what is it that, um, that makes your nervous system uh, able to cope better? What are some skills that would allow you to cope better with things so that things don't register? as a trauma. Is that even possible? In the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit SomniumWine.com and use the code Somnium to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly. Yeah, sure, sure. You know, anything that that can put us in lower states of vulnerability, 
right? Mm -hmm. So if you think, I mean, how many people are, are going through life even before the pandemic, right? In, in a state of fairly constant vulnerability, right? You know, I, I remember reading before the pandemic, um, all this great news about how the unemployment rate is so low, right? But then you would also see news that would say some really astronomical percentage of people, right, can't survive and, and move forward as they're living if they have like a five or $600 expense. Right. And then you think, OK, you know, we're sort of celebrating that, 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 that there's a low unemployment rate, but, but so many people are employed in sectors where they just can't get ahead. Right. I mean, you think about the service industry and like how hard it is, maybe even approaching impossible to like do things people could do in the past. Right. Buy a home, send children to, to college if they choose. Right. That, that as all of that changes, that what ends up happening is it builds vulnerability into the system where now people's medical benefits are tied to a job that they could lose, right? Or they have a job, but their job doesn't have medical benefits and you need a job to have medical benefits, or at least you have historically, right? In this country, we're doing somewhat of a better job at that now. But you know, these states of vulnerability, which can also come by feeling denigrated in, in any way, whether that's because of socioeconomic status or it's it's around gender or sexuality, right? There, 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 there's so many ways in which people are sort of chronically denigrated, right? And and feel a sense of being less than. And and like that that really doesn't help at all with our resilience mechanisms when something traumatic happens. And the more we're interconnected with other people, there's friends and family and support networks around us, you know, things that we had a lot more in the past that we now have a lot less of. So so absolutely we can do things to predispose us to handle traumatic things well so that they don't leave us different going forward, right? Mm -hmm. But unfortunately a lot of what's happened in the world around us only brings more vulnerability and predisposes us to to the negative reactions inside of us through traumatic things and how many people have lost their lives right so how many people are are, are now trying to go forward with lost loved ones and you know feeling a sense of vulnerability they never felt before and we have such an angry and often heartless political dialogue around us that can can we can we blame anyone if, if most people are feeling beleaguered and then what are we doing we're just making soil that's fertile for the seeds of trauma to fall, whether that's a car accident or it's a death of a loved one or it's loss of a job or it's any of the other millions of things that can that can happen to us. We, we create fertile ground for the seeds of trauma to change our brains, to release shame, to create fear in us and to make life worse for us going forward. And I don't think that's esoteric. I mean, I think that that's the common sense read of what's going on around us. I mean, I'm trying to put some structure to it in the book and in this conversation, but I also think that it's just eminently obvious just wow. looking at the world around us. What a great perspective. The word that comes to mind the whole time is sovereignty mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how I think, I feel like we're all being called into sovereignty yeah. over our bodies, over our minds, and that there's so much being pushed on us that yes. it's like, it kind of um, is at a breaking point or mm -hmm. being it's we're being pushed so hard that we need to step into that. Does that register? Is that the right way of thinking about it? 
Yeah. I mean, most people are pushed really hard after these last couple of years, right? Mm -hmm. And most people were pushed really hard before these last couple of years. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, you need look no further than the opiate epidemic and how many thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people died needlessly. Right? And how much of that was desperation when, you know, the opiates after the surgery, oh, didn't just help the knee pain, right? But they helped a greater kind of pain, right? A kind of pain inside that then created a dependence that ended up killing that person. And as someone who's, who's done a lot of work in that realm over years and years, it's just tragic because it's a, the, the opiate epidemic, yes, it was a symptom of many, many things. Um, but one of the things it was a symptom of was the desperation that's getting built into all of us, right? It's getting built into us as Americans, and we're not doing a good job of taking care of ourselves. Resources are squandered, mm. right? We don't look around us for like, how can we use our resources as a society better? How can we use healthcare resources to actually treat our health? I mean, you 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 look at what's going on and you say, in a way, it's exactly what one would expect, right? You know, if we all live together on a street and we said, well, let's not take care of it anymore, right? Let's have potholes in the street and who cares if the tree limbs fall off and kill somebody. And, and you know, we'll fight with each other too while we're doing it, right? Are we really going to be surprised if we run that forward and we're like, wow, some of us are dead, right? A lot of us are really at risk or unhappy. We're at odds. And like this street that might have been a lovely place to live before is now going you know, going downhill and it's not for lack of resources, right? It's just that the resources are squandered or we're just looking at everything through a lens of anger and frustration. And there's so much of that in the world where, where you think about the idea of like the lack of attachment to truth and to fact, right? Which is, you know, as a guy who was a political science major and followed politics for so many years, like at least people would, would like, agree if there was a fact like you know if, if i were saying one plus one is three and you're saying it's two and you can show me that it's two right you know i think in the past i was unlikely to double down and say you know what it's three anyway right and now i'll attack you personally right i mean like why you know we're, when we do that we we work so strongly against our own interests and so much of that comes because people are just angry. And this is this is how it gets. If we're afraid and we're angry, we just want to be right, right? Right. And we don't care if we're actually right or not. We just want to assert ourselves and 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 say we're right no matter what and have that feeling inside. And I see so much of that where there's allegedly political dialogue. But if you do what I do for a living, you watch some of that and you say, this is two angry people talking, <laughs> right? Right. And, and getting angrier as they're talking. And then there's almost a pride in being unattached to facts. Well, well, guess what? It's unattached to facts that leaves hundreds of thousands of people dead through the opiate epidemic. It that leaves hundreds of thousands of people needlessly dead from COVID that has the resources being sucked out of the systems that are supposed to help us. And, you know, I'm not trying to doomsay, right? But I'm saying like, look at this and, and let's look at where this is going. And it clearly can't be anywhere good. I mean, I'm based in Portland, Oregon. And over the summer, it was hotter than it is in Death Valley here, right? I mean, we have to look at the world around us and say, you know, there are problems with the climate. There are, there, there, there are problems across the board from, from how we function as societies from small to large to how the planet is functioning. And it's like, it's common sense for us to look at that. Well, we're just probably fractal in nature anyway. So the micro is the macro. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, I feel like when you start taking care of yourself better, you start taking care of other people better. And it's right. just kind of ends up being a reaction. What I was thinking about was like, I wonder is, is the, the, the deep anchoring and the cognitive dissonance around subjects and the inability to decide to be able to say, maybe it is too. Uh, is there, is there so much more anchoring and anger uh, as a result of actually trauma being activated or is it more fear? I'm curious that I just, that sprung to mind. And I was like, man, is this actually like trauma activation happening mm-hmm. with people? Sure, absolutely. So many. I mean, if you you look into the backgrounds or the life histories, when when, when people are are very um, negative, disruptive, right? Like you know, negative or harmful forces in the world around us, whether that's in big ways or it's just in the hey, I don't care who's right, I want to have my way, right? Mm-hmm. The, you know, when you look underneath of that, that very often there is trauma, not always, right? But but I look, I've learned over 20 years of doing what I do that if, if you look for trauma, you very often find the answer, right? Why is that person not stopped drinking after five residential rehab stays, right? Why is this person still depressed after so much depression treatment, right? Why, why can't this person sleep, right? And we have such a reflex. It says, well, give them more antidepressants, give them more sleeping medicine, but we don't look at why, right? And so often, I mean, so often, if you engage in a process of exploration of dialogue, what you find is that yes, trauma is underlying those problems, but what, but trauma makes a reflex of shame, in us. We feel guilt and shame and anxiety and fear. And then it changes our ability to see, right, what has happened to us. So, so you think there's very, there's very, it'd be hard to imagine a worse enemy, right, than an enemy that changes how you think, right, and makes you feel a sense of guilt and a sense of shame and a sense of being beleaguered, which often makes a sense of defensiveness, which can lead to a sense of digression sometimes, right, and that you don't even know the difference. Right. And that's often what trauma does to us. You know, I tell this story of a young woman who, before of an acute, terrible trauma, you know, saw herself as somebody who could navigate the world. Right. And she was a bright and engaging, and people liked her. And, you know, people she was interested in dating wanted to date her. And she had education opportunities and that she thought well of herself. And, and she won an award at some point, you know, I think it was back even in, in high school for like being smart and great about something, you know. And, and it was like how she thought of herself. She kind of anchored herself to like, hey, that thing was great, right? And it shows like, I can go do what I try to do, even though, you know, there were, she had a lot going against her. She was trying to navigate the world, right? Then after the trauma, her whole story changes and she doesn't know it right? It changes into no one likes me. No one will ever love me. I'll never have a good relationship. I can't make my way in the world. Oh, and that award, it was a life laughing at me, right? Here's the best you're ever going to do with yourself, even though you're in high school, this award that someone gave to me, even though I didn't deserve it, right? I mean, it all changed in her. And by the way, I've seen this over and over and over. It's just, it's just one very clear example without her having any understanding to say, wait, is that how you felt about yourself before? This is truth. What do you mean? It's 
Of course, it's how I feel about myself. Like, you know, I've known you for years. You never felt like this before, right? Then we can start to begin exploring that. And that happens in us with traumas often that extend back to childhood, but, but you know, not always. They don't always have to go back to childhood, but they often do. And they change the way that we're functioning, the way that we're taking care of ourselves, the way that we're interacting with other people. And often we don't know it, which is why, you know, I have an entire clinic where we we take care of people from the clinical and consulting perspectives and trying to help them understand themselves. And so often, how do we help people get better is we look at the, their history and what they're saying to themselves and what their life narratives are and what the role of trauma might be. And it just makes sense, you know, where yeah. we're moving towards vending machine medicine of like, just give me an inventory of your symptoms, right? And I'll, without making eye contact, I'll flick a medicine back to you. I mean, how could that work? Yeah. Right? Does that, make, does that make sense? I'd have, I don't, I'm saying a lot about it, but it's a hundred percent. I, it's just, it's the roots of it. Like you can keep like putting a bandaid on a bullet hole, but like, it's got to fix the problem at some point in time. Right. And what is your opinion on, because I, I mean, maybe I should go back. My experience is everyone has trauma on some level. It might not be manifesting in a really big way in your life. It might be like, and it can be really, you know, it comes from simple places. Um, but there is definitely like an aspect of the self-help community that uh, would say, I don't think this isn't like a, a psychologist, a perspective, I don't think, because this is not the point of the actual job, but that there's a bypassing that you can just outthink it. You can just choose right. what feels good. And that is, I feel like there's a rise in that, but there's also a rise in practices that you have. And I remember having a conversation with my mom and just talking about something and some issue that she had had. And I was like, hey, you know, did you and dad ever think about going to therapy? And she went, no. Right. Like it right. was, you only went if you were a psychopath right. or if you had right. like some kind of really terrible manifested depression that right. made you debilitated to some level. Right. But I feel right. like there's also a rise to going to therapy. I go to therapy. I sometimes have two therapists at once. Like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love the work. Right. Um, so I'm just curious what's your opinion because both of them are on the rise but I think there's some bypassing happening if you act like you can solve your problems by just make pretending right. like they're not there. Absolutely. I mean, I, I would say this, I still say this a lot, but I would say this when I was teaching all the time that look, there's, there's like three kinds of people, right? The people who have real mental health problems, right? Bad depression, um, bad PTSD with panic attacks, right? Or any kind of post-trauma syndrome, PTSD is just one of them, right? Mm -hmm. So there are people of real mental health problems, right? There are people who aren't alive, right? And the rest of us all have mental health issues, okay. right? I mean, it's complicated to navigate the world, right? It's complicated to go forward with all the things that happen to us, right? And if someone comes in our door and they don't have a post-trauma syndrome, they haven't made changes in their brain, but they've had issues of like this stressor or that stressor, this trauma or that trauma, right? But not big enough to change the brain. Well, right. guess what? That's worth talking about too, Yeah. right? I mean, I go to psychotherapy weekly as well and have for years and years. And, wow. and like, sometimes I have something problematic to talk about, but if not, I mean, my goodness, there, there's enough in my life <laughs> yeah. right, that, that it can help me 
function better. So this idea that like we can all benefit from grounding to ourselves and what's going on inside of us and what are the stressors and what are the decisions that we're making? Absolutely. And then we can shift back and forth between having a problem and having issues, right? So as I wrote about in the book that I wrote, after my brother's suicide, I had real problems. I mean, my brother chose to end his life by suicide and it deeply impacted myself and my parents. And when I look back, I had no mental health background. I was lucky that I had people around me who were helpful and supportive, right? And, and helped me get through it. But, you know, my thoughts about myself and whether the world was safe enough and I could go make something of myself in it had really shifted, right? I knew something was different. I knew something was wrong. I wasn't taking care of myself like I did before. And I was unhappy and I was depressed. I was not just unhappy. I went for that to depress and I was drinking too much. And, you know, and you know, I really didn't have a knowledge of, of like, oh, you think about yourself differently, where you have an internal dialogue that's built around shame now and built around shock. And, and, you know, I needed help then. And there's no shame to that, right? In a sense, right? Like trauma makes us want to feel ashamed so that we hide. It's it, That's like, you know, that's the, it gets the ultimate in evil, right? That the thing that you need help with creates shame that makes you hide it. Right. But we, we absolutely need help if it rises to the point where we're not sleeping well, we're depressed, we can't get it out of our minds, then we need to go and get some help. And when we do, it can change things just like, you know, if one hurts one's knee or, you know, one has a problem in their lungs or like we go see people to help us. And it's no different. I mean, if you imagine how, if it's okay, I'll give an example how after certain, if if trauma rises to the level of overwhelming our coping skills, right, Mm -hmm. then our brain function changes, like we were talking about earlier, right? And we can't just think our way into changing that back, right? Is this anxiety? Well, it gets to be, it's more than just anxiety. It can manifest itself as anxiety, but they're automatic things that go on in the brain. So for example, the idea of like, how do we react if we, if we're not on the other side of trauma that's overwhelmed our coping mechanisms, when we see a new person, right? Is we, we look at that person and we look for, for interest. Like, do you look interested in me? Do you look benign, right? Do you look like you might have something to offer in a conversation, right? We, we look for other at other people with a sense of, of curiosity, right? Yeah. And interest in them. After trauma, in the way that get overwhelms our coping skills, we're different going forward, then we're looking at other people through the lens of vigilance mechanisms, which is really like, are you going to, do you mean me harm? Mm-hmm. Right. The thing about that's not a, the best way to go through life if we're trying to like do the best we can at our job, right? Or people are trying to find someone to have a relationship with, or you know, whatever it may be, or even like meeting a new neighbor. If you know, if we automatically say, I see you, I don't know you, and I automatically am thinking, Are you trying to harm me? Right. Mm-hmm. That is so different than the kind of openness, yeah. right, that we feel. If, if we're not in that situation and the idea that, oh, we're just going to think our way out of it, right? It's just like, it's not how that works. No more than if someone has an ACL tear and you think, I'm just going to look at it like this until it fixes itself, right? right? So so if we recognize what's going on inside of us and we look at what's our internal dialogue, right? What are we saying to ourselves, right? As the day goes along, right? What's our life narrative? What do I think of my life? What kind of story would I tell, right? These are the ways that we start to get in touch with what's going on inside of us so that we can again be empowered, right? Like you said, sovereignty or what sometimes is called agency of like, Mm -hmm. look, I've got it. I'm in charge of myself, right? Mm -hmm. I'm an adult and I'm in charge of myself in a world that doesn't make that easy, 
right? So I want to be at my best, which means I want to understand myself as best I can. What do I have going for me, right? I don't want to see myself through the lens of guilt and shame and fear and anxiety, right, that comes on the other end of of trauma, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. A few kind of words, like a cluster of sort of concepts come together, um, like victim, victim mentality, um, accountability, um, and so I'm kind of curious if there is a subconscious awareness, like I'm curious about people that don't want to heal too, like that can realize that their life is kind of a mess and they don't want to figure it out. But I wonder if that shame and the things that people feel, if underlying there is a, cause here's the thing. I know I'm talking around, 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 I'm not being clear right now. In therapy, I was told, because I wanted some healing from some issues with my dad, and and my therapist said that nobody holds the keys for you. And I was like, oh, and like uh-huh. Uh-huh. there's a it's a it's a level of accountability that I was overwhelmed by for a second. I was like, oh shit, this is all my fault. Meaning, like, sorry, not my fault, but my responsibility. Your mm-hmm. traumas mm-hmm. are not your fault, but your healing is your responsibility. Right. Yes. And it's not easy. And yes. it's not necessarily quick, yes. um, but essential for moving forward and having a next level of joy and happiness and freedom yes. and, and agency, as mm-hmm. you said. And so I wonder if there's just a lot of people that are actually really comfortable to be in a victim mentality because they think that's also its own little epidemic of mm-hmm. like victim mentality. I think there are a couple of things that can go on there and make that unfortunately very widespread, right? Mm-hmm. One is, so if trauma makes guilt and shame, right, and decreases our sense of agency, right, then it, then it follows that we're much more likely to hide from it, right? The idea being that to make our lives better, we have to take chances, right? Yeah. Even the chance of like, well, let me stop and think about what's going on in my head right? Let me write down what's going on in my head. Let me talk to somebody about what's going on inside of me. Let me admit something, right? That might not be the most pleasant thing to admit. Trauma tells us not to do that, right? It says hide it away because it says you should be ashamed of it. I mean, how many times have I seen people who, you know, person who was assaulted, right? And knows that like that they did nothing wrong, but they can't get around that feeling that it's their fault. They should address differently, walked in a different place, right? And like, that's what's in their head, right? And it's driving shame. And then they don't want to go talk to someone about that, right? Or childhood abuse. I mean, for goodness sakes, it creates so much distress and shame. It's like, I can't tell anyone that, right? And then we hide ourselves from the helping resources. So the fact that, that trauma makes guilt, shame, insecurity, anxiety, vulnerability leads us to do the opposite, right? Of what we would do or should do to help ourselves. So that's part of it is that people in a sense accidentally painted into a corner, right? And, and if we had more trusting resources, I mean, how many people say, oh, and I tried to get some help. And again, I'm not trying to be negative to the, the, the people who are trying to do the helping, right? But if one works in a system where you know, you're seeing four people an hour, you can't stop and listen to people, you can't hear their story, you can't have follow-up appointments in a reasonable amount of time, then of course people feel unheard, right? Yeah. And then they go and they're trying to maybe taking that chance, maybe you'll talk to me. And, and then they come away with some medicine that doesn't work because no one talked to them. So the medicine, of course, isn't going to fix the problem. And then the system is saying, oh, they failed the 
the medicine. I mean, right? I mean, it, it, it makes no sense, right? And then the, the other aspect can be the idea that embracing a victim role is is also a power position to be in and say, mm. hey, because I I feel victimized, right? Yeah. Now I, I'm sort of standing outside of of criticism, right? You know, you mm. can't criticize what I'm doing or saying, right? Because I'm identifying that way, right? Okay. Which is not helpful either, right? Because when people internalize victimhood, I, I don't mean in a sense of like, if someone does something to someone that's criminal, you'd say, okay, that person is the victim, right? right. But there's a difference between that as a, just a descriptive term, right? And how people actually feel inside. And it yeah. is never, never good is never healthy to internalize the victim role. So I feel like a victim, I am a victim, right? That that 100% of the time takes away from our sense of agency, our ability to have sovereignty, our ability to marshal our resources, right? Because what you're describing happened to you in therapy where like the light bulb goes off and you're like, oh, this is my responsibility, right? Then you're able to say, okay, well, I'm gonna marshal my resources, right? Like, you know, I've got intelligence and thoughtfulness and empathic attunement and and I can can use words and I can be open and honest. And that then you feel empowered to go do that thing, to help that thing that is your responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. Which Which is different. I mean, a person can't do that if there's guilt and shame and such a sense of vulnerability, which is why you can see that it's almost like trauma in creating guilt and shame conspires with our helping systems, allegedly helping systems, right? To actually keep people from help because there's not a place for most people to go and in a safe way to talk about it and to come away with an experience is like, oh, that helped me. I'm starting to put words around things. And what's the goal of all of it? That I'm healthier and stronger. Right. right. For me and for the people around me, like it's nothing but good. It's mm-hmm. not something that I need to feel ashamed about, for goodness sakes. It's actually the opposite of that. Yeah. And that's what we Power. see here when we see so much change in yeah. people, not because it's magic or it's even rocket science. We're just applying, the, you know, have all the arrows in the quiver of how you approach someone to try and understand and help them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I interviewed Priyanka Chopra a while back and she said a line that I thought was so right on. And she said, sadness is seductive. And I was like, uh-huh. wow, that kind of hits like that. That feels real. Um, yes. And so I'm wondering what happens biochemically in your brain that you stay in a loop or a pattern, which kind of might lead us into a little bit of an anxiety conversation because I'm really fascinated yeah. by anxiety. Sure. Sure. Well, a lot of the changes in the brain will come from the brain's efforts to stay safe, mm-hmm. right? And, and ultimately, like, we're all seeking safety, right? Because it, it's only from a place of safety mm-hmm. that we can go out and do the things that we wish to do in the world. I mean, my guess is that in your career, right, the, the, you're feeling that, hey, you had a good team around you and mm-hmm. you had a good car. Like, so everything was as good and as safe as it can mm-hmm. be, right? Then it lets you go out and be at your best. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. if you didn't feel safe, right, you felt mm-hmm. actively unsafe, how can you go out and, in a sense, fire on all sure. cylinders and be your best? Right. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and that's what we're, we're really all, all looking to do that if we can't build safety that look, I can go out my front door and I'm not terrified of every person that I meet because all I'm doing is threat sensing. Right. Or if I'm not living in a world that says, 
hey, you know, good news, you know, you're employed, um, everything is great, but, but you know, hey, I don't have health benefits, somebody gets sick or car breaks down, I can't survive, right? You know, just examples, or that one is, is constantly denigrated or seen as less than by society, right? And when's the next time a person's going to look at me and see me in that way or not give me a job or an opportunity based upon whether it's gender identity, sexual orientation, socioeconomic, ethnic, religious, whatever it may be, right? We need to create safety in our society in rational ways so that we can then go out there and be the best we can be. And this idea that we're going to go do that while we're beleaguered inside, right? And why, while we're feel, we have all these effects of trauma that tell us that we're not safe, how do we expect to do that? And how do we think that that's not going to lead to more anxiety, to depression, to sleep changes, to physical health changes, right? Because more than half the complaints people go to physical medicine doctors are coming from mental health places, right? From mental right. health issues, stressors, right? So, you know, if we don't have systems that acknowledge this and we're so concerned with throughput and we're so rapid fire and fast, then we're not actually helping anyone help themselves. And then we just run along headlong, you know, we run headlong forward into more and more dysfunction as trauma accumulates and more and more people are not helped and the resources get sucked out of the healthcare system. So I don't know if that was a good answer to it, but. Yeah, I think so. Because, you know, if we don't have you know, we don't have a safe place. If we can't be ourselves, then, you know, we kind of stay stuck in a way. Right. Right. And afraid. There's no, there's no, there's no freedom. There's no, there's no space. Like you're just sort right. of tight. And right. um, yeah, I, I, it does. It does. Um, so one of the things you'd mentioned earlier was genetics. And I'm kind of fascinated by genetics, epigenetics, and how all of that stuff works. So what, the hell do we do if we're if we have genetics passed on and like what does it actually what actually has to happen to mark a genetic change within you that then makes you be the beginning of a new coding is that ha- can, can, you can change that within you that then passes on and that's what you're saying right right it determines whether a gene is active or not so there may be a gene that so is, this is epigenetic but is that epigenetic mm-hmm. Okay, yes. so this isn't genetic. So I think people need to know the difference because, because um, it, yeah, it, I think that's important. It doesn't mean that you're actually changing your gene coding. It's that you're you're essentially activating and deactivating certain codes, and that's epigenetics. Right, right, right. And a lot of the activation or deactivation is is within the the sequence of codes in the genetic material. Right. So that it's kind of complicated. What is it changing and what is it not changing? Right. But 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 the but what it is changing is is that gene active in you? And then and the idea would be there may be a gene that's active across generations. Right. Mm -hmm. That we think, oh, that that person or that that person has that gene that's come down to them. Right. Mm -hmm. And then trauma, you know, the trauma that overwhelms us, changes our coping mechanisms, makes changes in our brain can then change whether a gene is on or off. So so it can mean it's as if you didn't have it. Right. Mm -hmm. So imagine there's a good gene and you've got that gene to pass on. Right. Mm -hmm. You've got that gene to pass along. But if something happens and now it's turned off as if you don't have it, well, yeah. you're going to you pass it on in that way, 
right? Ah, and, yeah. and in the book, I, I, I have two interviews in my book. One is with Darren Richarder, who is a, a psychiatrist who works in trauma and trauma research at Stanford. And Darren speaks to the science behind this. And he's done really seminal work around this. So, so for example, it was thought at one point that, say, rape as a tool of war, right, was a criminal thing that happened in a one-time event, right? Like that thing was yeah. wrong and we're going to look at it as criminal. And it happened on that day at that time. And like, that's that. And it was bad, right? And now through lots of people's work, including in the epigenetic realm, but Darren is a person who's, who's uh, synthesized a lot of this together. You know, now th there's, a, there's a different, appropriately different view of that, which is that act on that day, rape as a tool of war, changes that person's life for the rest of their life. It impacts that community for the rest of that person's life. And it impacts as generate it impacts generations to come. Right. So in the case of that woman may not be become pregnant and have a child till seven years later. Right. But that event changes how she is going to pass on her genes years later. Right. So it, it starts to validate that like this is real. Like ancestral trauma. Like I was going to ask about that right. too, but here it is. Right. Right. Because yeah. how does that happen as we keep passing along sure. those genes? Right. And on the one hand, you say, okay, we're, we're passing on genes. A lot of that is about survival. Right. Yeah. But, but survival isn't necessarily consistent with optimization. Right. If too much that's <laughs> going on in us is just about survival, well, maybe we do become more fragmented. Right. As, as humans, we, maybe we do trust each other less that we, we, we keep creating trauma in, in our societies as we mm -hmm. then pay those genes forward. Right. Mm -hmm. And what are we doing to ourselves across generations? And there's the second interview is with a, a woman named Stephanie von Gutenberg, who is a, a German uh, child wellness and child health advocate. And she's a tremendous amount of expertise on childhood trauma. So it's just, it's the most dramatic way of seeing like what trauma does to us, to people as we move across the lifespan. And when you combine her writing about early childhood trauma, and then Darren Richarder, you know, in, in the interview with him around transgenerational trauma, then the idea is really to provide the full you know, to provide the full perspective. And then I'm filling in what's in the middle of, you know, what happens to us when our coping skills are overwhelmed, what changes in our brains, how does it affect our bodies? How does it affect our memory, yeah. our memories, you know? So the, the idea is to really, in an engaging way, to talk about that whole continuum from childhood through transgenerational aspects. Wow. Yeah. Well, somebody, you need to know what to do, right? You need to know if you have ancestral trauma, you don't necessarily know because this whole aspect of being a human and not being able to see yourself is kind of a real thing. Like yes. the mirroring aspect of the world is a critical, uh, critical element. Yeah. And so writing a book that, that gives people those um, triggers almost to activate, like, Oh, I kind of deal with that. That's mm -hmm. critical. I mean, that's important. Yes. Um, yes. What do you think about, um, what do you think about gene therapy or CRISPR, things like that, that can go in and edit genes or change the coding? Is that anything that you think will make its way into your field? Well, if so, I think that'd be a long way down the road. You know, we're still trying to figure out you know, how to change like one specific gene. If we know, for example, in medicine that, okay, there's an illness and that illness is tied to one gene. 
right? We're still really trying to figure out how did you repair that one gene? Like, you know, it's which so- gene is it, right? Well, it's right. And sometimes we can, we know which gene. Oh, really? Right. And, and it, it's still difficult to go in and try and fix that. I mean, it just highlights the complexity, right? That, that we, you know, we, each one of us is more complicated than like, you know, everything else on earth that's not another human being, right? So, that, you know, so we've learned so much and people have just done just tremendously brilliant research. You know, Carl Dyserath, who's a, a friend and a uh, former uh, colleague who went to medical school, who, who's done so much in this area, you know, epigenetics and neuroscience. And, and there are just so many people who are doing wonderful work, but it's so complicated. I think we're a long way from being able to inter- intervene in things that are, that are polygenic. There's multiple genes involved, mm-hmm. right? We need to get to where we can say, oh, that illness is related to that one gene and we can identify that gene and change it. Right. And we're still sort of figuring that out. So would you, is it of your opinion that maybe it might not come from genes and maybe this is a, this is an element of consciousness? Yeah. I I think that, that how we help people is, is really coming from the meta phenomena. Like, like we, we, we understand that changes can happen in the brain. And there are times I can really soothe that, at least in the short term with medicine. So for example, if after trauma, the, the vigilance centers are hyperactive, right? And a person can't even engage in therapy, right? Or, or maybe not engage in their life, right? Then we can use medicines to try and get at the underlying neurobiology, right? And it's great to do that when it's yeah. indicated, right? It's not great to throw medicines at everything, but it's great to utilize medicines when we can tell, okay, they really make sense to treat something that's come of trauma, right? Yeah. But what is all that in service of, right? It's in service of being able to talk about it, right? Being able to apprehend the, the feelings inside of us, the thoughts inside of us, because, you know, the most powerful parts of our uh, part of our brain is the limbic system, right? The emotion system, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that we're logical creatures, right? And like, oh, we should just be logical about things is, is a completely untrue, right? Like we have logical <laughs> systems in us, but it's utterly untrue. That well, you you think I'll give this example where think about a, a, a lo- the logical systems in our brain never say it's a good idea to run inside a, to, into a burning building, right, 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 right. But if if like a loved one is in the burning building, right, like people run and people do that and do it without a second thought, right? Because when the logic systems and the emotion systems come head to head, the emotion systems win. Which right? is so I don't care what logic is trauma, right. which is trauma, right. Right. So if trauma is impacting those emotion systems, yeah. right, and now they're vigilant and they're mistrustful and they see ourselves in a negative, shameful light, right, it doesn't matter what the logic systems say, which is why more times that I could possibly count, how many times have I seen, including in myself, where I would say, oh, I could see that for somebody <laughs> else, right, but not for, for me, right? Because the emotion systems will say, no, I should, I'm special in the sense that I should feel ashamed about this. Mm-hmm. Right. And I actually feel like this is my fault. And I see that so many times or prisons, if it were someone else, they know what they would say to that person. 
yeah. right? And they know how they would help them, but they can't do it with themselves, right? Yeah. And that's why we, we need to think, we need to write, we need to talk to people, yeah. right? We need the opportunities to help us get over the, the things that are in the meta phenomena, the psychology, right? Which is how we interface with ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And how we interface with the world around us. And if we're ignoring all of this while we're running headlong, right? Then is it any surprise that we trip and get hurt, right? Mm -hmm. The example I might use here is like, you know, imagine like a sprinter, right? In a, a hundred meter race. I mean, you had to come out of those blocks in a way that's like very well telegraphed. And that person has to be great at doing that. Mm -hmm. But if they just launch themselves out, they will fall headlong forward, right? <laughs> and that's so much of what we're doing. We're rushing headlong forward as a society. We're not taking care of ourselves and we're just rushing and rushing and rushing. And then it's like, we're, we're like sort of psychologically trampling ourselves you know, on the way. And then we're surprised and we're like, oh, violence rates are up. Suicide sure. rates are up. Opiate dependence rates are up. You know, we, we handled the pandemic so dysfunctionally that hundreds of thousands of us died who didn't need to. And now we have to deal with all of that, right? And everyone else living who's, who's dealing with that trauma. I mean, we're not even taking good care of family members of people who died in 9-11, Right. I mean, why wouldn't we, 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 we can't stop and look and say, let's use our resources for things that are good for all of us or people to whom we feel indebted. Right. We, we, we're rushing along headlong and you know, we're, we're close to the point where we we're having trouble taking care of ourselves as a society. And you just see it in the conflict around us. And it's not that hard to look at it and say, hey, if we can't get a healthy grounding in responsibility, right? Responsibility to rational communication, responsibility to truth, responsibility to the idea that like, guess what? I might be wrong now and then, or we might have different opinions. And like, you could be a good person, even though we disagree, right? I mean, if we can't take these responsibilities, how are we going to take care of ourselves as a society. And I just see that there's a common sense to it that on the one hand, yes, there's complex neurobiology to all of it. On the other hand, there's just common sense of anchoring to the value system, right? In our religious traditions, right? You know, in our, uh, you know, what science and medicine tell us, right? Even in early childhood education, right? I mean, you have young kids and so often what, what they're seeing, you know, a seven-year-old, what she's seeing going on you know, in the world around us, if she sees media, like totally doesn't fit with what she's learning now in second grade, right? Mm. So like, how are we supposed to teach kids? Like, here's a civil way to behave when they, they look and they see, well, that's not what I'm seeing, right. you know, in the world around me. And, you know, we, if we root ourselves to, in, in many ways, to common sense, to the common sense of science, medicine, or religious traditions, our early education, that we can start taking better care of ourselves. And that can start for each of us today. I mean, everyone can think yep. what's going on inside of me. Everyone can be just a little bit nicer to other people today, which I don't think is some Pollyanna bleeding heart thing to say. I mean, if I feel really pushed and, and beleaguered, right? And I can do something nice for you. If you, you know, drop something at the checkout line or a smile to someone, to, you know, who, who the, maybe the person at the checkout line who dropped something, smile at that person instead of frown, right? I mean, it helps that person and it reminds us that, hey, you know what? There's good in me, right? I'm not just so beleaguered that I can't access any good in me because if I can't access it for other people, I'm not going to be able to access it for myself either. A hundred percent. Well said. That was a good spiel, right? That was good. Thank you. I Thank you. A lot. Um, I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, I think that will hit home for a lot of people. I think that hits home to the truth of the reality of our existence right now. And right. it kind of makes me feel, you know, makes me think about mindfulness practices and how, mm -hmm. you know, 
you know, getting your body into a parasympathetic mode and that, you know, if you were to walk out of yoga class or a meditation or a nap, even right. like, you're not going to react to this, the world in the same way that right. if you just got done doing, you know, simultaneously doing six different things right. while being pulled in this direction and your phone's going off and the news is talking about dramas and there's bombs going off on the screen. Like yes. you're not going to respond to the world the same way if that's your brain state of high beta brain state of right. vigilance. And that's right. I right. think that that's a really important thing for people to understand. What are the um, what are some of the uh, tools that you love in your practice to, I feel like, you know, maybe explaining something that somebody could do at home without a therapist, but then also then some of the things that you love in your own practice. And one of which came through big time in, um, in the um, body keeps a score is EMDR. So mm -hmm. I'm just curious mm -hmm. about that. Yeah. You know, in the book, I, 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 there are a lot of stories because I think the stories are meant to engage people and, and, you know, some of them a person can relate to and some not, but the idea is to engage people around like the, 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 the truth of it, the reality of it. And I think that, that there, there's guidance that comes through the stories and there are antidotes, you know, mm -hmm. throughout the book, which are simple stories. things that we can do. So I think the stories and the antidotes provide a lot of that. And a lot of it are things that we can do ourselves. Right. So again, just showing some goodwill, to someone else doing something nice to ourselves is the same thing show good, some goodwill outward treat ourselves a little bit better inward right relaxation exercises right guided imagery right i mean these are things that we can do and do alone they're free they're easy and they and they help us feel they, they can help us feel so much yeah. better and 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 taking stock of like what is our life narrative right like what do i think of myself in my life and it's fascinating that often that we're not doing that and when a person starts to put together a life narrative you know sometimes a person will start well and they're, they're talking about things in a very positive way and then are struck that wait that's not at all i feel like i'm talking about someone else Right. And then they, they'll realize like, oh, because I've shifted into a different place of what I think about myself. Right. And if, as you said, we feel so activated and beleaguered, uh, is a person going to say the kind thing or the terse thing to their child? Right. Is a person going to go towards or away from a better job opportunity? Right. Is a person going to smile back at the person they like who they might go out with who smiled at them? Right. I mean, is, does it change everything inside into a place where we feel beleaguered and we don't really notice? Right. And people will say, oh, nothing good is happening to me. Right. Nothing good ever happens to me. But, but like, okay, but good things haven't been happening since that person has been hiding themselves from the world. Mm. Right. And we often don't know why. Like, you know, I write in the book, I had a woman who loved going to parks and then her husband passed away when they were at a walk together at oh. a park. And now, you know, she can't drive by greenery in a park without feeling the awful tension inside or how my mother died from pancreatic cancer. And then any word that sounds like that word, you know, I wrote in the book where I was going to the St. Pancras, my terrible American accent, right? Rail station in London. And I, and I was gonna, going to meet a friend and, and I had this like terrible feelings of like, why I didn't want to be there. And, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, do I don't want to see this person? Like what, what's going on? I realized like the name sounds like pancreas, right? So I'm feeling ashamed of myself. And what was going on in my head is I should have gone home more when my mother was sick. And like, wow. no, I'm in a terrible place. And, and, you know, and I don't, I mean, it's only that I've 
you know, try through my own therapy work to build up the introspection that would let me think, oh, like you're triggered by something traumatic. And, you know, you actually do want to be here and you want to see this person, right? But that could have gone in a very different way when I'm just feeling terrible about all of it and it's all going over in my head. And it's just simply the triggering of the name, right? Mm. And like, that's not unique to me, right? I see this all the time in people. And like, if we develop an understanding of ourselves, right, then we can see what's going on inside of me. Is anything different? How might it have changed? What's changing my body? Am I taking care of myself? Am I healthy the way that I want to be? Right? Am I sleeping the way that I want to be? How am I being with other people around me? But we've got to start off with a sense of curiosity about that and an ability to take stock of what's going on inside of us without feeling afraid of that very process. Mm. What's your opinion of um, medicines beyond prescription, like MDMA or ketamine or psilocybin, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. any of those kinds of medicines? Yeah. Oh, I believe they, they hold tremendous healing power. And, and like any very powerful tool, it has to be, they have to be used very carefully. But if you look at the, the data, whether it's more recent research data or it's data from several decades ago, right, and you really look at and you, and you see clinical examples of like, what is happening in people? What are we able to do with those medicines? The, the, the power is, is extremely high to help people heal from trauma, but we need to figure out and understand how do we incorporate that into the processes that we're already utilizing. And, and my thought, and we are, as, as we, you know, our primary clinic is in Portland, Oregon, and as Oregon now is moving towards legalization, then we are moving towards having those arrows in our quiver too. Mm-hmm. Right, because we need to be able to 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 have all the arrows in the quiver that, that one can have to try and help understand a person, whether it's a clinical or a consulting process. Right, we want to have all those arrows in the quiver and be able to bring them to bear. And the arrows that you just mentioned um, have the potential for a potential for healing that is, in, in many people and in many situations, kind of off the charts compared to the other mechanisms. And if you combine, of course, it's not just medicines, not just a mm-hmm. substance, right? Mm-hmm. It's you combine it with with also the striving for self-understanding, for changing the, psych- the psychology uh, in us, then the healing that can come of it all is immense. To incorporate therapy with it. I mean, yes. what I, I mean, there are yes. lots of practitioners that are, are using it in conjunction with therapy. Yes. Has yes. there, is there a favorite? Do you, do you, would you say of, uh, of those kinds of medicines outside of prescription, do you have a leader in the clubhouse for what you think has the most powerful healing abilities? Yeah, I think they're different by person and by what that person is facing. It seems like what are sort of known as the psychedelics, right? That that have an ability to to really change dramatically the patterns of, of communication in our brains and seat our experience of self and the world in a place that's deeper in the brain that's unclouded by a lot of the survival stuff, right? The seeking right. safety stuff that lets us get at um, what has been traumatic in us and can create healing in ways that that, that really are, I think, previously unimaginable. Um, mm. I think that they are, they're at the sort of highest end of the power scale, but I do think that MDMA and ketamine, they, they, they hold tremendous power themselves. We're just, we're, we're coming further and further down the path of understanding how you choose one versus the the other and you know circumstances in person and and and, and how we, we safely deploy those treatments with the psychotherapy part that's needed so that so that you know it's being done safely it's being done right. effectively and right. it's being done 
um, to really change a person's life for the yeah. better. And I, I mean, I think we're we're really heading towards understanding how to utilize those incredibly powerful tools. Would you would you say it was almost like a shortcut to the truth by being able to bypass the survival skills in your um, reptilian brain or whatever, whatever the chemical process and the access that we're, we're, we're using in our brain. Is it almost like a shortcut? I mean, I know you have to get to know your patients. I know these are new therapies and you know, it's, uh, you've got to tread lightly and be careful, but would you say that it's, it's actually a preferred route if safe? I, I think yes, in the sense, again, yes, in the broad sense that that I, I think some of what's happening is the distress coming from the sort of reptilian deeper parts of the brain, right? Mm-hmm. But but some of what really ails us and and gets sort of hijacked by trauma are actually the outer parts of the cortex, right? What we're thinking, what we're planning. You know, imagine like the, what we think of as the most advanced human part of the brain that does executive function and planning ahead, right? Mm-hmm. If that's all hijacked for like, what bad could happen to me today, right? Who might do something bad to me today? Wait, wait, wait. And then we're projecting ahead to all the scenarios of what could go wrong. Then we have the sort of reptilian parts and what we think of as the more advanced parts of the brain that are that are both working against us, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what we can do, we see this all the time, right? And, and if there's a way of quieting the noise of all of it, of all of it and being seated in a deeper place, then that's how we get the shortcut. The idea of if you're really trying to listen to something in a piece of music, right? And you want to hear it and it's important, but there are six other speakers playing six different kinds of music, right? As most of which you don't like, right? <laughs> then how are you going to attend to that, to the signals that you really want to hear and think about and understand? And, and we can get that way through traditional medicines and through psychotherapy, but the novel, you know, the, the novel, medicines, right, that are now progressing towards legalization, right, and we're studying them and they're progressing towards legalization, right, they they offer an opportunity to sort of quiet the noise coming from those other speakers, right, mm-hmm. playing just distraction, right, that, that, that one can then really commune with and, and, and much better understand, okay, here's what's going on inside of me. And, and I see, do I feel a sense of truth to that? And people can often have compassion for themselves and an understanding of themselves that they couldn't muster otherwise. I mean, the data and the research tells us that, and it tells us that pretty unequivocally. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's awesome for an option as a practitioner and as patients. Um, it, it feels like there's a, an aspect of it. That's a lot like EMDR because reading about EMDR and body keeps a score, it's sort of, you know, feels like it's sort of that access point that allows you to bypass things and get to Mm -hmm. an observer perspective of an event that was traumatic to you. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like you become a time traveler in a way that you can go back and you can watch something happen and create a new sort of a new neural pathway of firing that is different right. than when it happened. Um, yeah. What, what do you think about EMDR? Yeah. I think it was beautifully put what you just said. And I think that is the truth of it, that, that what EMDR is trying to do, right. And what many of our helping modalities are trying to do, but specifically what EMDR is trying to do is bypass the things that keep us from being able to revisit something and revisit it in a way that we can change the sort of flags of emotion and meaning. Right. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the logical parts of our brain care very much about the clock and the calendar. 
right? They're logical, right? They have to plan and execute on things, right? The emotion parts of our brain do not, which is why, you know, terrible trauma from 50 years ago can still be just as immediate in that person's mind. There was a time when I was covering, you know, 10 nursing homes or so along the Eastern seaboard of Massachusetts. And, and when I would see people there with whom you could do psychotherapy, it so struck me that these traumas, even from childhood, it could have been eight decades ago, are still so immediate because that emotion, what's called the limbic part of the brain, that emotional part of the brain doesn't care about the clock and the calendar. And that can be used by trauma against us, right? Because that trauma that happened 20 years ago may as well have been yesterday, right? That's the negative part, right? But the positive part is, well, we can access that. And the brain doesn't say, we can't access that. It was 20 years ago, right? It'll let us access that. And then we can change the meaning, right? Because the memories themselves don't have meaning. They're bland and dry. They only gain meaning when they're linked to emotion. So if the memory is linked to an emotion of shame and an emotion of Mm -hmm. terror, and we can get at that and we can shift, maybe it's linked to perseverance, right? Or resilience, or even a sense of, you know what, something awful happened to me, right? Things that were wrong happened to me, but they don't have anything to say about me or who I am or what I could do, right? Then we can go back and change those sort of flags of emotional meaning. And that's how we can become very empowered, right? A sense of agency, a sense of sovereignty, right? Vis-a-vis things that have been holding us back or weighing us down for years, it's taking advantage of that, hey, that emotional side doesn't care about the clock and the calendar. Let's use the best of the logic and the emotion and, and bring some helping resources to bear. And then we absolutely can change how people feel and function going forward. I mean, it's, it's not always where oh, there's, a, there's a miraculous cure, but it's remarkable to see how much better people across the spectrum mm-hmm. do applying this just kind of well-grounded, hey, this is what we know in the field. This is what we know about psychology. It's what we know about brain science. It's what we know about how to deploy effective medical care, right? Mm-hmm. And, and ultimately, if we ground ourselves in common sense, we would do a much better job taking care of ourselves and having systems that take care of us than we're doing at the moment. Mm. That's so hopeful. It almost Mm -hmm. feels like your emotions are connected to the quantum field and that can access anything outside of this time-space reality, which is tied to more of the limbic brain or is the limbic part of the brain, the part, the linear thinking? So the logical sort of mechanism, then the limbic is more the emotional part. Oh, the Olympic right? is the yeah. emotional. And what's the thing? What's the yeah, thing? So limbic, it's like L-I-M-B-I-C, like limbic, limbic. system is the mm-hmm. emotion system. And then yeah. there are the logic systems of our, you know, prefrontal cortex that, that are, there's more in there, but that's the planning ahead and yeah. thinking and, and executing. That seems like it's rooted in this sort of like third dimensional world of time, space, reality, and like, Sorry, my esoteric brain gets thinking. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, the emotions are connected to the quantum field. That's why you can go to any time and place and correct it because it's all because there's there you you get out of this time space reality and the yes. constraints of it. Yes. Similarly, you can Absolutely, also manifest yes. really positive things if you can connect emotionally to something or something something that you want. Right. It makes me think about heart and brain coherence that. Yes sort of other spiritual teachers will talk about, which again, activates that emotion, um, which is so powerful. That's right. that. Thank you. I yes. feel like that was a great explanation. Yes. Help me connect some dots too. What about, um, I, I would, I'm going to wrap it up here. Um, but what do you think about the whole metaverse 
AI, like that must come into your field and there must be, you must have an opinion on those and how those affect us as human beings. I think the, the evolution of technology, I think as with all technology, it gives us the opportunity to do good things with it. Mm -hmm. And it also gives us the opportunity to do very harmful things mm. with it. I mean, if you think even the technology of what we're doing, right? I mean, we're sure. trying to get good information out to people, right? Like yeah. there's something you're doing that lets you reach so many people in a way of saying, hey, you're interested in something. You want to have, do you have a thoughtful, do you want to listen to a thoughtful discussion about something, right? Well, we're, we're, you know, we're looking for facts and understanding, like you can get that out there and that's wonderful. Right. But the other side of that coin is, like, you know, how much that's hateful and, you know, that is rooted in the lowest common denominator of people feeling very badly and then wanting to ally with other people who feel very badly and 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 have some sense of superiority. Right. Or some, you know, something that's that's based in all this terror and anger in people like we see that, too. Right. So I think that it's not always the technology good or bad. Right. It's what will we do with it? And I think there's the opportunity to do immense good. And we've seen technology do that. Right. And, you know, there are combat reconstruction, right. You know, scenarios that help people work through their combat trauma. Right. And then mm -hmm. technology plays mm -hmm. a big role there. Right. So there's so much good that technology can do, but there's so much negative too, where people can suffer virtual trauma. Right. I mean, how, you know, how close are we to things happening where, where people might not be sure is that really happening to me or not? And then maybe awful things can happen that, that then change the brain. I mean, we, we need to be responsible instead of running headlong into it because look, this much is true that trauma puts blinders on us. Right. And then that sense of sovereignty and that sense of empowerment becomes less and less and less. And what you were just saying of right, the, the sort of quantal aspects of the emotions are not tied to time, but we can like harness that. And then we can harness the logical parts of our brain in a way that really frees us and say, I don't have to have the progressive blinders to where I see that like this is all I can do. And, uh, you know, we can take that away and see like that we're not restricted to the things that trauma tells us. Right, yeah. including our own anger, frustration, depression, all these things that come to us. And, you know, it's that that we want to move forward. I, and I think technology can help us, but that will only help us if we're also just grounding to those basics of common sense, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well, I'm excited about the horizons of psychology. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your knowledge and, oh, and allowing, uh, you know, your brother and his suicide to kind of be an impetus to helping people and to, um, to sharing what worked and, and, um, and helping other people get to the other side of it. So thank you. What a fun conversation. Thank you thank so you. much, Paul. You're welcome. Thank you so much. I so appreciate it. You know, as, you, as we we're saying before, I'm a big fan of yours and I have such admiration for you. And I so appreciate that you would have me on and that we've been able to have this conversation. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.